while we're all standing, I'm going to dismiss the finding the rocks. We've got one going this way and one going this way. And one is starting Sunday. Come up here, George, real quickly. And tell us. There we go. So that they can get in if they like. In a nutshell, if you want to know what your ministry gifts are, if you want to know the basics of our foundation, of the foundation of our faith, come to Finding the Rock. It's a 10-week class for Finding the Rock. Three weeks are added on for Finding My Ministry. You can get saved Sunday morning. Go to Finding the Rock. When you graduate, you'll be in ministry. How about that? But we encourage you to come uh, at 9 o'clock. It's in the back of the church. Just ask somebody at the uh, connection point, and they'll be happy to show you way, uh, the way. Tony King is teaching it. Great teacher, and you'll learn a lot. Amen. Thank you, George. All right. How many of you are ready to go through or finish up Second Peter tonight? And then we're going into Jude. Hey, Jude. But I'm not going to call it that. Um, we're going to begin Jude next. Boy, Jude is so strong. As they'd say in East Texas, strong as bear's breath. It is. Jude is strong. But Second Peter and Jude really are brother and sister. One leads into the next. And tonight we're going to talk about judgment is coming. You don't hear a lot about judgment in our day. Too bad. Because you know why? Judgment's going to come to this world. So let's pray together and ask God to speak to us tonight. Father, we just thank you that the Word of God is so clear on this, Lord, and we ask you to speak to us tonight, that we would live the way we ought to live, witness the way we ought to witness, reach the way we ought to reach. Father, we open our hearts to you. Would you breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, speak to me in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. God bless you. And I'm going to finish this tonight with joy in that it's a joy of mine to pre preach and teach the Word of God. Uh, I repeat this a lot, but we go through whole books because I know something. I have a secret. I know a secret. The secret is the more you know the Bible, the stronger you're going to be because faith comes by hearing Good Morning America. Is that right? No. Faith is drained, and we won't talk about the view. I hope I don't have any view. If you really love the view, we're having an altar call down here in just a minute, and we're going to pray for you. No. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. Okay? So let's look now at 2 Peter chapter 3. Last time, Peter scoured the scoffers. We saw also that God does not inhabit time. No, God inhabits eternity. He's not bound to time. So what seems long to us is a very short time for God. A day under the Lord is as a thousand years. What? Or a thousand years is as one day. That, that means God dwells in an eternal present tense. Because if a day is like a thousand years, that's really bored. When a day feels like a thousand years, what is Peter telling us? That God doesn't live in time. He, he lives in an eternal present tense. So Jesus am 2,000 years ago. He am now, and he am 2,000 years from now. All right? Now, so he doesn't live the way we do. So he's long-suffering. 
not willing that any should perish. And Peter's going to repeat that again before we're done tonight. Hence, Peter explains the 2,000 years between Christ's ascension and imminent return. He says, scoffers are going to come, ask where is the promise of His coming, and they're all around us right now. And Peter makes it clear the patience of God testifies of His longing for people to be saved. Period. That's why He waits. And if not for the patience of God, we would all be grease spots in these chairs. There wouldn't be any church. Okay? In the closing verses of chapter 3, Peter first deals with the subject of God's judgment. That's what Peter and Jude talk about all the time. The Bible talks about it all the time. I don't know why we don't. Total, overwhelming judgment, says Peter, is on the way. Total, overwhelming judgment. It's been delayed through the age of grace in which we live. But come it will. The day will come when the last person will be saved. The day came when the last animal walked into the ark. The day came when the last family member of Noah walked through that door. The day came when grace ended and God shut that door. It's the same now. It's not going to be any different. So come it will, though it seems to take a long time. Peter says in verse 10, The day of the Lord is going to come like a thief. Now, if you've got a pen and something to write in, and you've got a, maybe you're writing in your Bible, if you've got a Bible too holy for you to write in, I'll give you one you can write in, because you ought to have your Bible all marked up. So if you want to underline something really important, underline that phrase, day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is going to come like a thief. Here's what Peter sees by the Spirit of God. The heavens are going to disappear with a roar. Wow. The elements are going to be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare or burned up. Everything in it. Jesus said there's nothing hidden that will not be made known. God's going to redo the earth. Now, there are several days, quote, days, end quote, that word day or days found in the Bible. And let's go over uh, the ones that I know anything about. For instance, there is the day of Christ. Now, this refers to the day when the church will be raptured. The day of Christ. Let me show it to you in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 8. He will also keep you firm to the end, so that you will be blameless on what? The day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Remember, the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible through men. It is inerrant. It is without error. And so when he uses the word, he uses it precisely, exactly, and intentionally. So he says, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That phrase, you need to look at every word in it. And also in Philippians 1.6, look what it says. Being comp- this is one of my favorites. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until what? The day, the day of Christ Jesus. There it is again. Same phrase, the day of Christ Jesus. Well, that's, that's talking about the rapture of the church. One will be taken, one left. Two in bed, one taken, one left. Two in the field, one taken, one left. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the sound of the last trump, the dead in Christ shall rise first. 
and those who are alive and remain and are sitting in turning point will be caught up together with them. Well, there's Grandma! In the clouds, and so shall we ever be with the Lord, comfort one another with these words. He's talking about the rapture of the church. That's the day of Christ Jesus. It's His day. Now watch. Then there is the day of the Lord. This is the day when everything will be done to abase man and exalt the Lord. It's sometimes described as a day of wrath and vengeance. It also coincides with the millennial reign of Christ on earth. Now, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord is the millennial reign of Christ. The thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. When the lion lays down with the lamb, when children play at the opening of snakes' dens, carnivorous activity is gone, hostility between species is gone, hostility between humanity and the animal kingdom is gone, Jesus rules from Jerusalem, the entire world, for a thousand years, there is peace, he rules with the rod of righteousness, the devil is bound, it is the millennial reign of Christ, that's the day of the Lord. You find this expression first in Isaiah 2.12. And after Isaiah 2.12, it appears 20 times in the Old Testament. Isaiah writes these words, For the day of the Lord, notice, what does he call it? The day, not the day of Christ, the day of the Lord of hosts, shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. What's he telling us? The pride of man is going to be abased. And the Lord is going to be promoted and exalted. And every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the day of the Lord. And it goes on for a thousand years. Now, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Malachi, all mention the day of the Lord. Now, the expression also occurs four times in the New Testament. For instance, Paul wrote, You yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Now, the end times holocaust that we're about to look at that Peter is predicting. Peter predicts it. John predicts it in the Apocalypse, in Revelations. The day of the Lord is what precedes another day called the Day of God. So you got the Day of Christ, the Day of the Lord, the Day of God. The Day of the Lord gives way to the Day of God. Let's look at this. This day, the Day of God, points to the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. You can read about it in Revelations 21, 1 through 8. The Lord Jesus will deliver up the kingdom to God that God may be all in all. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 15. Peter uses the expressions. You'll notice in verse 10 and verse 12, he uses two different expressions. Verse 10, he says, day of the Lord. Verse 12, he says, the day of God. Remember, the Holy Ghost doesn't make a mistake. He doesn't mince words. He never says, er, he never says, uh. He is a perfect elocutionist now watch he says peter 
talks about the day of the Lord in verse 10 and the day of God in verse 12 to pinpoint the time of the fearful judgment that he is about to describe because this judgment closes out the day of the Lord and launches the day of God. When the millennium comes to an end, if you read in your Bible, in the book of Revelations, we read that the devil is released again for a brief season. Now, you ask me why is the devil released again at the end of a glorious millennial age when he's been locked up all that time? And my answer to you is, I don't know. I wish I did understand it, because I'd keep that boy down there. But God has his inscrutable purposes. All I know is, the Bible clearly teaches, he's coming out again. And there is a rebellion against Christ at the end of the millennial age, the end of the thousand-year reign. When that takes place, a ferocious, all-consuming judgment is released by God. After that judgment, the day of God kicks in, and my personal belief is that's when the great white throne judgment takes place. But now let's look. The day of God will terminate the Lord's millennial reign on earth, and the day of God ushers in the eternal state. It's all over when the day of God begins. No more devil. He's in the lake of fire with the Antichrist and the false prophet. Uh, no more sin. No more resurfacing of Satan. It's all done, all over with when the day of God begins. Peter adds that this closing event in the day of the Lord a fearful and awesome judgment is going to happen like a thief in the night. Suddenly, catastrophically, the judgment falls, and it is something. So at the very end of the millennial reign of Christ on earth, as the final moments of the day of the Lord draw near, judgment will strike. I'm going to be bold enough to say tonight, you and me as children of God will see it. Because we've been on that earth during the millennial reign of Christ. So I believe this is something we will at least be aware of. Now, Peter first describes the totality of it in one of the most amazing prophecies in the entire Bible. Boy, if you ever doubted that the Bible is the Word of God, this, this is going to open your eyes. This one right here. This is, well, let's read it. Chapter 3, verse 10. Read this with me. The heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. Now let's, you know I'm a word guy, and, the, and you know what? God's a word God. So I'm going I'm to take some of these words, and I'm going to make them come alive to us tonight. Now let's look at this. What we have here, th stop and think about this. We've got an uneducated Galilean fisherman living 2,000 years ago, writing into the Bible an accurate description of the nuclear age. Oh, come on, Pastor Jeff. He just said things were going to burn up. Well, let's look at some of these words. Notice that Peter used the word elements. All right? The ancient Greeks thought there were four elements, earth, air, fire, water. And you know what? They were wrong. They were wrong in both the nature and the number of the elements. The ancient Greeks were wrong. 
We're going to come back to that in just a second. The expression that he uses is a great noise. The heavens are going to pass away with a great noise. Comes from a single Greek word found nowhere else in the entire New Testament. It refers to the sound of an arrow whizzing by on its way to a target. But W.E. Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words, in other words, we're looking at the Greek here, states that it also signifies the word used for great noise, a rushing sound like roaring flames. That's what Peter had in mind. And more than Peter, that's what the Holy Spirit had in mind. Now let's move on. The English word for element. The elements will melt with a fervent heat, he said. The word for element comes from the Latin word elementum, which is a translation of the Greek word stoikion. The word that Peter uses here, stoikion. Now in the field of physics, stoikion was defined as the components into which matter was divided. It was therefore a perfect word for the Holy Spirit to use here in discussing the particles that make up matter. In today's English, stoichion would simply be expressed by the word atoms. Atoms. The basic component of all material things. That's what the Holy Spirit pulled out to use for this verse. The elements or the very atomic structure or all the whole makeup of the physical world is going to melt with a fervent heat. The phrase fervent heat is from a Greek word denoting a fever. Peter is intimating that all the elements will be hot as with a fever. So watch this. Peter accurately describes the untying of the atom and the resulting rushing, fiery destruction that follows it. That's what he's describing. The elements will melt with a fervent heat. The atomic particles are going to be loosed. Now, Peter next exhorts the believer to holiness of life, and we'll come back to that more in a little bit as well, but I want you to see another word in here. He says, seeing then in verse 11, that all these things shall be dissolved, mark that word, what manner of person should you be in all holy conversation and godliness. So let's look at the word dissolved. The word translated dissolved is from the Greek word luo, meaning to break up, to destroy, or to melt. It is translated unloose in Mark 1.7 and several other passages. Look at those adjectives there, break up, destroy, or melt. He said in that verse, all these things, all the elements, all physical things are going to melt and be dissolved. This is a crusty old fisherman talking to us here. Think about that. It conveys the thought of something or setting free something that has been bound. Clearly, this is speaking of the loosing of the atom which would bring about the dissolving of all things through fire. Let me quote something out of Colossians to you. The Bible tells in Colossians that 
the elements and the atomic structures are held together by the word of Jesus power do you know why we're still walking around and having life and this world is still here because the Lord has not spoken it away yet but it says all things are held together by the word of his power he holds together he is the cohesion to the entire universe Now, Peter's telling us something powerful. Let's sum it up. The Holy Spirit is saying that at the end of the age, at the end of the millennial age, a great fire will occur in the heavens and in the earth. He uses extremely precise language. He says the elemental particles of matter, which we now call atoms, will be dissolved, untied, released by the word of Christ. They'll be released by the word of Christ, untied, loosed that's why people who say i just don't see how he's going to speak and we're all going to go up there and especially people whose bodies are now just ashes how are they going to come back together and go up there we're talking about the god who can say a word and everything flies apart i mean come on church for him to rapture us is no big deal he's going to speak and the whole universe is going to be loosed into a fiery flame. Their energies, hitherto imprisoned, talking about the atoms, will be set free. This is the cause of the coming Holocaust. Peter could never have realized the technical accuracy of his terms. He could never have envisioned the atom, the atomic bomb or hydrogen bomb, none of that. But the Holy Spirit did. The principle of nuclear fission, which is the basis of the atomic bomb, is clearly implied in this amazing prophecy. This is what happens when the atomic bomb goes off. Let's bring this home a bit more graphically. Let me show you. The first atomic bomb was exploded at 5.20 a.m. on July 16, 1945. The place for this sobering experiment was an arid wilderness in New Mexico. A huge tower was built of 10-inch nails weighing 90 pounds per foot. Every foot was 90 pounds. Huge tower of this steel. 10-inch nails, steel on steel. When the bomb exploded, the tower vaporized. Its debris was hurled seven miles into the sky. Where the tower had stood was a hole 60 feet deep and 5,000 feet wide. But wait a minute. It goes on. For 18,000 feet in all directions, the ground was boiled, fused, or melted. The elements shall what? Melt with a fervent heat when the atoms fly apart. There's a picture you can actually buy on the internet if you want it, right? And it's what color? Pale green, and it's radioactive. Anybody want some radioactive melted dirt? You can get it on the internet. But I, I, I showed you this. Now, let me tell you what I believe. With the first nuclear blast, the elements melted. The elements shall melt, said Peter, with a fervent heat. All these things are going to be dissolved. Now, will God allow man to destroy himself through nuclear weaponry? I don't believe he will. 
because I think this final conflagration of the whole universe is going to happen by the word of his power. But the point of showing you this in 2 Peter is to show you that the Holy Ghost knew about atomic structure, knew about the flying apart of atoms, and knew the reaction that that caused. I don't believe that God's going to allow, allow man to wipe out the human race, that he won't allow man to destroy man totally. But the Bible clearly reveals <clears throat> that nuclear exchanges will occur in the last days. There's no question about it. I'll, I'll give you an example. Zechariah predicts what, only, what can only be described as a nuclear exchange. He says, quote, And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Now, what does he mean there? This is in the days of the Antichrist. And right now, if you read Ezekiel 38, you read of Russia, and you read of Egypt, and you read of ancient Persia, which is Iran and Iraq, and you read of Libya, and you read of other pan-Islamic nations, you, you read about them coming together and attacking the land of Israel. And it happens, all the nations that are named by Ezekiel are lined up right now. Matter of fact, we used to, who study Bible prophecy, we used to look at Egypt and go, well, wait, well, he names Egypt, he identifies Egypt, but Egypt has made a peace treaty with Israel, and Egypt is really one of our friends and their friends until a few weeks ago when Mubarak was overthrown. And now you've got, guarantee you, an Islamic totalitarian government is going to seize Egypt. Because Egypt will be a part of those that come down against Israel. And it says that when they do this, something incredible happens. They are wiped out off the face of the map. And what Ezekiel describes is clearly nuclear. So when he says those who fought against Jerusalem, he is alluding to that time period when all these nations attacked God's land. That's why man... If you do anything, don't go against Israel. Pray for Israel. They're not perfect. They have not honored Christ to this day, but they're going to. But they're the apple of God's eye. Pray for them. Bless them. We send them a missions offering every month because I want to be blessed. I don't want to be cursed. I will bless those that bless you, curse those that curse you. I don't care how much people make fun of that. Let them make fun. I'm the one that will get blessed, and I'll be laughing all the way to the bank. Because God will bless a church that blesses Israel. But now, here's what he says is going to happen to those people that go against his land. Their flesh will dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes will dissolve in their sockets, and their tongues will dissolve in their mouths. The operative phrase being, while they stand on their feet. Before they can even hit the ground. They are consumed. That's nuclear. Now, Peter asks, in light of these things, what manner of person should you be? <laughs> I believe I'm going to stay right. What manner of person should you be? He says, you better watch your lifestyle. Holiness and godliness should characterize the life of the child of God who sees all of this coming. And these things should not take the children of God unaware. Now, the Bible holds up Lot as an example of somebody who barely escaped being consumed in the fiery doom of Sodom. Sodom's a great example 
of the fact that God doesn't need a nuclear bomb. It says of Lot, while he lingered, he wouldn't let go. I think it's because his wife wouldn't let go. Seriously. The men took hold of his hand, took his wife's hand, the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out. So he was almost halfway coerced out of that city. And as soon as they were far enough away, the fire fell. He barely made it out. Peter drives the point home by repeating the coming judgment a second time, verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved. Being on fire, he's repeating himself. Being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, he tells us again. He's reminding them, take care how you live, be sure you're ready to meet the Lord. Because this is coming. The phrase looking for and hastening comes from a Greek word meaning to desire earnestly. You're not afraid of the Lord's coming. You're desiring the Lord's coming. If you're right with Him, you can't wait for Him to return. If you're in sin, you're ducking and dodging. Now watch. Those who love the Lord are to earnestly desire the coming of the Lord and His kingdom. This expectation will ensure a pure lifestyle. If you want to know how to stay pure, John tells us how. Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we will be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him does what? Purifies Himself. Preach it to me. Say it again. Purifies Himself. How do you want to stay pure? You just, you're always got one eye looking up because He could come any day. You know, I told you, my parents, when they went on vacation, I used to always say to them, when are you coming back? And they knew why I want to know when they were coming back, because the partying would stop the day before they came back. So I want to know when they were coming back. And they would always wisely say, oh, we're not sure. It could be this day, this day, or that day. Well, no partying happened, because all I knew, they were going to come back the next day. So it made me have to live right at least on the outside that's why the lord didn't tell us the day there's a lot of people who would live like hellions until the day before isn't that true y'all look at me with these halos over your head not me pastor jeff all right watch peter now concludes with more exhortation to a lifestyle befitting our confession Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. Jesus is coming back. Now, how are you going to be found by him? What are you going to be doing? How are you going to be living? Peter's readers, as are we, we're living in a hostile world under terrible conditions. So he says, be diligent, meaning that you're hastening to do something or to exert yourself to get something done. Be diligent. Exert yourself. Work at it. Cooperate with the Holy Spirit and with God that you would be found of Him without a spot, without blemish. Because He's going to come back. And He assured us He's going to come at a time when no one's expecting it. These people that give you a date, as soon as they give you a date, walk away. I've seen a lot of dates come and go in my time. And they, they make fools of the people every time. Remember the Lord was going to come back in 88, 88 reasons why he's coming back in 88? 
Remember that one? Were you around then? I'm dating myself here. But in 88, there was 88 reasons why he's coming back in 88. And, and I was pastoring in East Texas, and all my, my congregation were all up, uh, excited about this, and some were upset about it, and some were uptight about it, and it was causing this big controversy. And I preached. I said, it's not right, because even Jesus doesn't know. Or do you know something he doesn't know? He said, only my father knows when he's going to turn to me and say, go get your bride. But you got these people come out. Oh, I've studied the word. I've done Bible numerics. I've got it nailed down. He's coming. Here's 88 reasons why. I read all the reasons. None of them made sense. 88 came and 88 went. I had people leave the church in discouragement because 88 didn't happen. Around the country, people sold their property. People left their jobs, went and did whatever they wanted to do, vacationed here and there so they could get it all done before 88. And 88 came and 88 went. It was sad. You're never going to know. Right when you think he's not coming, blump! The phrase without spot means without any mark or stain free from all defilement before God. And the word blameless means not open to adverse criticism. In other words, you're living your life in a way that others can't look at you and call you a hypocrite. It's quiet in here tonight. People say, I get a kick out of it. I'm not going to church because it's full of hypocrites. I say, well, come and give us one more. <laughs> Just come and give us one more. And if you're so right, come and help us. I mean, we're all, we all stumble, James said, in many ways, we stumble. But people who profess Jesus and have no intention of living the Christian life, that's who we're talking about. Now, so Peter here has dealt with both the vertical and the horizontal relationships of life between us and God and us and people. We're to be at peace with God and man and clean and blameless in his sight when he comes back. That's how he wants to find us. Peter again reminds us that God's patience has in mind the salvation of men. And consider, he says, the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. If God struck everyone down for misconduct and wrongdoing and gave no space for reflection, remorse, and repentance, the human race would end by next week. We're all dependent on the patience of God. I mean, can anybody in here not say, please be patient, God is not finished with me yet? Thank God for the patience of God. We'd have been doomed a long time ago. It is His amazing patience that allows us to keep on living. Thank God. Peter next expresses a word of admiration for Brother Paul. And this, this is important. I want you to really catch this. He says, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, now, this is an interesting reference to the great apostle to the Gentiles by the great apostle to the Jews. Since his conversion, Paul had captured Peter's heart as a dear brother and a co-laborer in the ministry. He called him a beloved brother. From all across the Roman world, as Peter continued his travels, testimonies began to reach him of thousands upon thousands of people who had been led to Christ and nurtured in the faith by this amazing, extraordinary, once-in-a-world 
man. Closest person to Jesus Christ and his character was Paul. Now, Peter also recognized the depth of Paul's writings. And this is what I want you to catch tonight. As also in all of his what? Now look how Peter is seeing Paul's writings. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. Paul's teachings flooded the world with light. You remember what he said about the thorn in the flesh? He said, the thorn in the flesh was sent to me because of the multitude of revelations God was giving to me, that I would not be exalted, that I would not get proud. So I was humbled by this thorn because I was receiving so many revelations, such brilliant revelatory light from God. And you know, some of that light is too bright for a beginner. I could read some of our new converts in this church, some of the things Paul said, and all you're going to do is scratch your head because it was deep stuff. Some people who have been studying scriptures for years must still place a question mark after some of Paul's statements. They were deep stuff. Therefore, Peter warns against misinterpretation of and twisting, twisting his words. How often have we run across this concern with Peter Paul, John, how often have we run across the concern with Jude of false doctrine, this concern about false teaching? How many times in the New Testament, over and over again, they were concerned about twisting the Word of God? And here's who does it, verse 16, which untaught and unstable people, they're not stable spiritually, twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures that's that's the problem i shared with you last week somebody came out uh, last couple of weeks with a new book and this new book very persuasive guy i saw him interviewed i'm not going to give you his name i can't tell you how many people came up to me last wednesday night what's his name just tell me his name i don't, I don't want to tell you i'll tell you his name if you come up to me but i don't want to say his name i don't want it going over the radio because he's teaching false doctrine but popular guy very persuasive and talks a lot about god's love and god's love and god's love would never send anybody to an eternal hell it's just not going to happen so this person is what we call a universalist a universalist believes everybody is getting saved everybody's going to heaven and and, and when asked in the interview well do you believe in hell oh yes i believe in hell let me tell you what hell is and he goes into talking about a girl who comes up to him after every one of his services and gives him a little note and says, this week, I did not cut myself. That's hell. And see, that's an emotional appeal. But here's the problem. If that's the only hell, it makes Jesus a liar. It makes all the warnings of Scripture a liar. It makes the necessity of repentance and being born again a lie. It makes the whole New Testament really unnecessary. And yet when he's on television or in the book, very persuasive, very likable, very uh, kind of charismatic individual. But here's what he's doing. He's twisting the Scripture. Let me, let me show you. The word for twist is to strain or to torture. 
You're putting Scripture on a torture rack. Ah! I wasn't meant to stretch this way. It conveys the idea of torturing by twisting, a perfect picture of those who pervert the Scriptures for their own reasons, their own selfish gain. So Peter encourages next, You therefore, beloved, now let me say this to you, You therefore, beloved, and all of you listening by radio, You, beloved, since you know this beforehand from me, Simon Peter, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness being led away with the error of the wicked. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. Don't be led away, says Peter. Don't be carried away. Don't lose your foothold on Bible truth. Y'all are quiet tonight. Because there's all kinds of false teachers out there that are doing their best to get you to lose your foothold, get you to lose your place, knock you off the mountain and pull you into some kind of false doctrine, false teaching, false assumption. Do you know how many people are going to read this individual's book and go, well, I don't need to come to Christ. It doesn't matter what I believe. Because when Jesus died on the cross, everyone was covered and everyone was forgiven. That's what they teach. Universalism. It's not a new heresy. It's old in a new coat. So, don't be carried away. When somebody comes along with a suspect interpretation of Scripture and seeks to draw you off into his corner, don't go. But Peter closes out his letter with this. Let's read it together. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what you do the rest of your life. Grow in grace and grow in knowledge. Grow in His saving grace. Grow in His sovereign grace. Grow in His sustaining grace. Grow in His sufficient grace. And get to know Him. Make the effort to learn of Him. Grow in your knowledge of Him. Do you know about, more about Him today than you knew a year ago? If you're coming here, you do. Because we're teaching the Word of God, period. Make the effort to learn of Him. Exert, give time and effort to learn of Him. Grow in your experience with Him. Make it your lifelong quest to know Him better. If you do that and you stay in the Word of God, you stay in fellowship, you're going to do nothing but grow in grace and in knowledge. Let's stand together and we're going we're to preach this last closing verse from Peter. Are you ready? To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Give Him a hand. Amen. Now I want to read this to you just as we, we close because I want you to get what happened after this. After this that we just read, Peter put down his pen. And the end came for him soon enough. Soon they came for him. He was arrested. He was sentenced to death by crucifixion. Cruel way to die. But the gates of glory opened up for Simon Peter, the former fisherman who heard the call of Jesus and followed it. And in a moment, he was absent from the body and present with the Lord. Next time, we're going to begin our new series in Jude entitled Jude, a postcard from the past.
first one will be called to contend. Let's just worship him for a minute, can we, Joe? Jesus, you. you,